0: We are live in the Bregino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark cast-iron building Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Havana Hardball, Spring Training, Jackie Robinson and the Cuban League. The publisher, the University Press of Florida, the author, Cesar Brioso. Please join me as we welcome Cesar Brioso to the clubhouse. Thank you. Thank you you so much for coming. Uh, I really appreciate it, coming from uh, Virginia for an event last night at Fordham and tonight in the clubhouse. So thank you very much. My pleasure to be here. And before we get into this book, which interweaves fascinating stories, Just how did this particular book project, your background, how did this book project come about? Uh, Well, I I was born in Cuba, um, although uh, my family left
1: Havana when I was five months old, uh, 1965, but uh, as a kid, my dad, who's actually here today, yesterday was his birthday. um, Happy birthday. uh, He would tell me stories about uh, players uh, that played in Cuba, not just the Cuban players in the Cuban League, but also uh, American players uh, who would come uh, every winter to play uh, in, uh, winter ball, uh, you know whether it was uh, Tommy Lasorda or Ray Dandridge, uh, you know he, so he would tell me these stories, and then uh, eventually I became a sports writer uh, in Florida, and I found some of these players uh, retired there uh, quite naturally, uh, and so I started interviewing them for uh, newspaper articles, and with the idea that maybe someday it might turn into a book. Uh, so I've uh, been sort of researching. And gathering information for 15 to 20 years, uh, and then finally, uh, a, a journalism professor put me in touch with University Press of Florida. They were trying to expand their uh, uh, their uh, stable of uh, sports books, and I made my pitch. They liked it, and so here we are. It's a long, long time in coming, but uh, but I'm very glad that it finally
0: got published. Well, congratulations. Thank you. And there are there are three strands that you interweave in this story uh, masterfully. It's not easy to interweave these. Thank you. So I just want to kind of mention those three strands, and then we can get into them to some degree. Uh, At this time, Major League Baseball was under threat by Raiders from the Mexican League. The Cuban League was under threat of being blackballed by organized baseball. And Jackie Robinson is two months away from breaking the color line Which, ironically or not, there's the threat to the Negro Leagues because of that. So you have these these three different threats, in effect, going on at at once. And uh, since the title is Havana Hardball, maybe out of respect to your dad as well, we should start with Cuba. Uh, So the Cuban League is under threat of being blackballed by organized baseball. If you could just give us a little bit on that.
1: Right, well, this ties in with uh, what you're talking about with the Mexican League. Uh, Jorge Pascal, the uh, president of the Mexican League, started uh, trying to uh, convince uh, Major League players to jump their contracts to go play down in Mexico, and he ended up getting about 20-some players to do so. Uh, of, of various skill levels, uh, but, you know, somebody like all-star pitcher uh, Max Lanier, uh, but he also went after some big names. He tried to get uh, Ted Williams, Stan Musial, Uh, uh, Bob Feller, he made pitches for all of them, offered them huge contracts, they all turned them down. But because he was going after some of the biggest names, uh, Commissioner Happy Chandler uh, ruled that any player who jumped uh, his contract would be ineligible in organized baseball for at least five years. But what he also did was say that anyone who played with the jumpers would themselves be, uh, played with or against the jumpers would be ineligible. So uh, the players in the Cuban League uh, they they were playing with some of these guys. They I don't, Cuba was the winter league, but a lot of them would play summer in Mexico, or they they'd manage in the summer in Mexico. <laughs> Excuse me, in Mexico. Uh, so because they had this sort of this guilt by association, uh, the essentially the Cuban league was was a rogue league. Uh, in fact, in the 1946-47 season, which is the one that's uh, most prominently talked about in the book. Uh, That was the first season at the El Gran Stadium in Havana. Uh, So what happened was, uh, in the previous, what used to be the stadium, La Tropical, there was a a rival league set up that was sanctioned by organized baseball. So anybody, any players, Cuban players that were afraid of uh, their status in the game, uh, went to play for this this uh, uh, this rival league uh, going on at the same time, and it, it. it, so that entire season, essentially all the Cuban players in the traditional Cuban league were, were ineligible.
0: Uh, we'll get to the others, but you you brought up his name, so I just want to touch base on him. It, uh, I was not that familiar with him, but it sounds like there could be a, a book on uh, Jorge Pascal, Pascal. Is that the there? Pr- There've
1: been there have been a couple of oh, books about, uh, okay. actually about, uh, uh, and they helped in, in my research. But yeah, the the uh, him rating uh, those uh, those players uh, in the in 1945, uh, and he was, uh, he was a millionaire. He was one of five brothers. Uh, he owned, uh, he and his brothers, uh, he was the president of the Mexican League, but he and his brothers owned, uh, had a controlling interest in several of the teams in, in Mexico. And uh, they, of course, had signed uh, a lot of Negro League stars to come down there. Cuban players went down there to play as well, but he wanted to elevate the Mexican League to really be a rival of uh, of the Major League Baseball. This was really sort of the the biggest challenge of this kind since the Federal League. Uh, so yeah, he, he was, uh, and he threw around money, offered big contracts, um, but uh, ended up having to sort of renege on some of those contracts. Uh, uh, he tried to get, after that first year, he tried to get players to uh, agree to play for half of what he had offered them. Uh, so it was doomed to failure, but uh, because all of the, Twenty some players left. Uh, Major League Baseball took it seriously.
0: And then, from what I remember in your book, he, he died in, a, in an accident. Uh? Yeah, years
1: years later, after after the book, uh, uh, he was uh, quite a character. I mentioned in there something about him uh, uh, at one time getting into a, a, a fight in a riot in, at a game. Uh, he was uh, boisterous when the when the uh, Dodgers were training. In Cuba in 1947, he was actually there in the lobby of the Hotel Nacional openly recruiting members of the Dodgers. Uh, no, none of them jumped, but <laughs> that, that's how brazen he was.
0: It sounds like he would have fit right in as an owner of and, you know, Baseball. Since we're
1: in New York, he, Phil Rizzuto, he actually got him to, uh, to agree to come, and then he, Phil Rizzuto sort of realized, hey, I don't want to do this, and backed out of it. Uh, but, so, yeah, he went after some big names. Wow.
0: OK, so now for, for, for the moment, let's turn our attention to Jackie Robinson. So it's uh, 1947, and in, in the back of his mind, if not at the front of his mind, Branch Rickey is ready mm-hmm. in April of 1947 for him to become a Brooklyn Dodger. Uh, most people are familiar that the Dodgers trained in Florida. They're legendary. Of all the teams, they were kind of the most famous spring training site. Uh, If you could just give us a little background of how the Brooklyn Dodgers ended up training in Cuba, how and why Branch Rickey takes the Brooklyn Dodgers to train in Cuba instead of Florida Mm -hmm. in February 1947. Well, this was all
1: uh, pre-Vero Beach. uh, So what was typically the Dodgers' uh, uh, base of operations for spring training was uh, Daytona Beach at this time. Uh, He had signed uh, Robinson in 1945, and then for spring training in 1946... Uh, they, the uh, at that point, uh, Robinson is with the uh, the Montreal Royals, a Triple A affiliate, and they encounter quite a bit of resistance that spring training in 1946 in Florida. They would uh, show up for the the Royals would show up for a game, and the stadium might be padlocked, or there would be this sudden lighting malfunction, uh, and or they'd be told by local police that there was a city ordinance that uh, forbade. Uh, uh, white and, and black players from playing together on the same field. So uh, all this happened uh, that spring training. So uh, for 1947, uh, Branch Rickey decided to move uh, their base, uh, spring training base, from Daytona Beach to Havana. Uh, the Dodgers had been familiar with Havana. They had trained there in 1941 and 1942, uh, so it was, it was not unfamiliar to them. Uh, and also, but, but more, most importantly, was to get away from the Jim Crow laws in Florida. Havana had a much more tolerant racial climate. Uh, the Cuban League had had interracial baseball since 1900 uh, in the professional uh, professional ranks. Uh, so he, he figured this that would be a, a, a better place to sort of uh, jumpstart uh, the breaking of the color barrier.
0: So I as I'm reading the book, I see that Havana is more tolerant. So it makes perfect sense that Branch Rickey's going to do this grand experiment. So the experiment can hopefully work two months later. Uh, on the other hand, in some ways Havana may not be that tolerant when we focus on, and some of the great stories in here are about this Hotel Nacional, uh-huh. which, sound, uh, which could be another book I told myself yeah. uh, what was going on in that hotel all around. But one of the things that was not going on in that, that hotel where the Dodgers were staying were Jackie Robinson, Don Newcomb, uh, Roy Campanella. Uh-huh. They were not in the Hotel Nacional. They right. were staying somewhere else uh, what, what was that about in this in this tolerant
1: environment well th- this was all really uh, Ricky's choice to, to do this but it's it's not unusual the the Dodgers being the major league team they stayed at the the Hotel Nacional this opulent hotel uh, famous it had been uh, built in the 1930s uh, the, the guest list included uh, movie stars uh, mobsters uh, you name it so uh, it was not it and then the, uh, the Montreal Royals, which at this point Robinson is still assigned to that team, they were uh, training and housed at the Havana Military Academy about 10 miles outside the city. So that, that's not entirely unusual. You still see that today where the major league team will be in, in the nice hotel and the minor league team will be off in another field, much less uh, less accommodation. So that in and of itself is not unusual. But uh, Ricky made, had the cho- made the choice of instead of having uh, – and there were four players uh, – four African-American players with the Royals at that time. It was uh, uh, Jackie Robinson, Roy Campanella, Don Newcomb, and Roy Partlow. Uh, And instead of having them uh, house at the Havana Military Academy uh, with the rest of the Royals' teammates, they had, uh, Ricky had them stay uh, in a pretty seedy hotel in Old old Havana. And with them were, uh, two writers were sort of embedded with them, uh, Sam Lacy from the Baltimore Afro-American and Wendell Smith uh, from the Pittsburgh Courier. So they would be shuttled uh, the 10 or 11 miles every day for, for workouts and, and whatever training was going on and then brought back. Um, it was it was an odd – Ricky was trying to be very cautious about what he was doing uh, in a sense, but it was an odd choice given that Robinson had already played the entire 1946 season uh, with the Royals and, in fact, it was the, the International League MVP. He had a great season, so uh, there couldn't have been any – real uh, animosity uh, among his teammates after playing with him a whole year. Uh, so it was, a, it was an odd choice, probably overcautious uh, on his, on Branch Rickey's part.
0: So now we get to the spring training games in Cuba, and how does that go? Is, is Rickey's experiment going smoothly, or, or are there some unexpected Besides Jackie Robinson maybe not exactly loving this hotel situation that he was in, uh, and Don Newcomb also speaking up a bit. How did everything else go at this point?
1: Well, uh, certainly it wasn't a foregone conclusion that Robinson would make it that year. Uh, Ricky had uh, several plans. Uh, he, one of them was he, he just, he sort of assumed and, and spoke to this saying that, uh, that he, was, he was going to let the Dodgers players make the decision. He was convinced that they would see Robinson play and understand what a great player he was and would insist that he, that, uh, that he would be on the team. Um, but there were there were factions on, on the Dodgers that were not interested at all in having a, a black teammate. Uh, so there was the petition uh, that, that was started up among uh, Dodgers players to uh, prevent Robinson from reaching the majors. Uh, Dixie Walker was one of the main uh, people in that. Bobby Bragan was another. Um, you know, but uh, he also had to uh, deal with one of the main things he had to deal with was changing positions. Uh, he had been a shortstop. Uh, uh, in the Negro Leagues, played second uh, with the Royals in 46, and now was uh, suddenly basically given the first baseman's glove and told to start playing first base, uh, which he had never played, had no idea even what to do with that position. So he was learning a new position. Um, Sometimes he, he also had to deal with some stomach problems. There was an injury late in spring training. Um, interestingly enough, uh, DeRosha, even though, again, they were, Robinson wasn't at this point assigned to the Dodgers, uh, Derosha was absent. Was an absentee manager much of spring training, uh, dealing with issues, uh, his uh, uh, scandalous marriage to actress Lorraine Day. Uh, there were hearings uh, that he had to fly off to in Florida uh, because of a feud going on between uh, uh, Dorosha, uh, Ricky, and Larry McPhail, who was then the uh, the Yankees president. Uh, so there were all these issues uh, swirling. Uh, not the least of which was the, the, the players being against uh, Robinson joining uh, the
0: Dodgers. And uh, if you could just talk a little bit about, you brought their names up too, these journalists who were embedded, Wendell Smith and Sam Lacy at that time.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, they were members of
0: the black press and
1: uh, they were uh, sort of champions of uh, the cause of, uh, of integration uh, and civil rights. Uh, lobbying to have uh, an African-American, uh, African-American players join, join the majors. Uh, in fact, Smith was uh, sort of on retainer of sorts um, uh, with the Dodgers, uh, sort of helping to, to shepherd uh, uh, Robinson along, helping him navigate whatever issues they might encounter. Uh, that, that began in the spring training in, in Florida. So they were there to chronicle, uh, what was going on uh, every day, and, uh, and so that was a, a, a one of the main sources I used uh, in putting together the book was the art- the articles they wrote at the time uh, for their respective weekly newspapers.
0: Yeah, uh, in the movie Forty Two, Wendell Smith has a his character as a major role right. in that movie at at this point.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, the movie I, I enjoyed the movie quite a bit, but for the obvious reasons of the two-hour less than two-hour movies, you right. sort of lose some of the detail. Uh, <laughs> no, Sam Lacy right. is not uh, prominent at all and right. all there. Uh, in the movie, the petition, uh, th- they talk about spring training just in Panama. Uh, right, what right. actually happened was uh, they were based in Havana and they took a side trip to Panama for like 12 days. Uh, but the, where the petition came up, uh, that, that w- where it became known to DeRocher and, and Ricky was in Panama. So the movie sort of just kind of streamlines the, the, uh, the details for the, to expedite the storytelling in a two-hour
0: movie. Right. Well, you get into some terrific detail in the book, uh, including, if we could just move off of Jackie Robinson and the Dodgers for a second, back to the Cuban League in 1947. Uh, If you could talk a bit about, and you mentioned this too, El Gran Stadium, Mm -hmm. a little bit about that and uh, what it meant at that time.
1: Sure, the Cuban League uh, had played before that since 1930 at La Tropical Stadium, and it was this sort of expansive, multi-purpose Facility on the outskirts of town. It not only housed baseball, but track. There was a track and field, soccer. Uh, It was originally uh, uh, built for the uh, 1930 Pan American Games. Uh, So it was was expand. The dimensions for the uh, for the uh, for home runs for the fences were were much larger than anything you'd see today. There was uh, it was part of a, a brewery. There was a beer garden. So it was a it was this really great site, but. Uh, as as popularity increased in baseball, it just was it was an outdated site. So, Bobby Maduro uh, and his company uh, built El Gran Stadium, which opened uh, in 1946 for the 46-47 season. Uh, and it was a baseball-only stadium. Uh, it's what's now called Estadio Latino America. So that's the the main stadium in Havana now. Uh, so that's where the the Cuban national team plays plays now. And um, uh, he. You know, built that stadium with the idea eventually uh, to uh, bring uh, Major League Baseball to Havana. Uh, that was pr- his goal. He he uh, at some point he bought the what was then the uh, international the Florida International Havana Cubans uh, bought the team. Uh, I think it was 1954, and they became uh, the Havana Sugar Kings in the International League Triple A. Uh, so that was uh, his eventual goal with that stadium was to to try to bring. A, a, Major League Baseball as an expansion team to Havana.
0: And so now the stadium opens, and if you could just talk a little bit about this Cuban League pennant race, which turns out to be this uh, legendary historical pennant race. As I was reading it, it kept going back. I kept thinking of, and this was before my time, but the Giants and the Dodgers in New York going at it unlike any other baseball rivalry ever ever. Uh, you know, probably ever again. Yeah. So if you could just talk a little bit about that rivalry in Cuba.
1: Well, I, I described the, the Cuban League only had four teams. Almendares, Havana, Marianao, and Cienfuegos. So what I described once they moved into uh, El Grant Stadium, what I describe it as sort of think of New York uh, in the 1950s with the Mets, Giants, and Dodgers. Throw in the Mets and have them all play at a, a new Yankee Stadium. That was the, the atmosphere that, was, that you, you could compare it to probably. And uh, Havana and Amendares they were referred to as the uh, eternal rivals. So uh, they had been with the uh, with the league since uh, it was uh, started in uh, 1878, just two years after the formation of the National League here. Uh, So this was the the rivalry uh, throughout the the decades of the Cuban League. And uh, in this particular season, uh, Havana got off to a a great start, and Amendares did not. Uh, They were behind by. uh, by as much as uh, six and a half games, I think with a month left in the season. And you're talking about winter ball, so it's, it seemed pretty much over. And then Almendarez goes on, on the streak where they win uh, uh, 13 or 14 games. Havana starts to, to struggle, and it's all le- leading to this uh, season-ending uh, three-game series between uh, Havana and Almendarez. And uh, Almendarez would need to win all three games. If they lose one game, they lose the, they lose the championship. Uh, and that's the, uh, the, the climax of, uh, of uh, that uh, season that I talk about so much in the book.
0: Yeah, there seems to be this, uh, in a strange way, I don't know, I don't know if foreshadow is the right word, but now you have Jackie Robinson four years later in the most famous pennant race in, in yeah. Major League history. And one of the most famous photographs in Major League history is when he's at second base uh, and Bobby Thompson touches home plate. He's kind of watching to make sure and that he's, he's watching started. from second to make sure he touches he actually home plate. touches the yeah. base. Yeah. So probably was not in his mind in February 1947, no. <laughs> but it wasn't that much later. Uh, well, I have uh, plenty of other questions, but I'd like to open it up to the crowd. Uh, if anyone would like to lead us off on anything connected to any of these topics, anyone want to uh, lead off? If not, I'll keep uh, asking. All right. Well, just raise your hand if you have a question. Uh, I'm going to throw out some other names that come up in this book. Mm-hmm. I was going to get into some other stories about the Hotel Nacional, but I- I'm not sure if uh, <laughs> it's still a little early here. So, <laughs> Although I did really love, uh, as my wife Marcy knows, and our dog is named Sinatra. Oh, really? <laughs> how much uh, we think of that the other Sinatra. I don't know if I, I, I truly love that story in the book, but I'm not sure if we should talk about that.
1: Uh, it's a good or, story, read it in the book. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: but that hotel, it really, I, I found those stories just fascinating with the mobsters, Meyer Lansky, and, uh, where that's apparently the hotel where, uh, if I remember correctly, where he, he, Meyer Lansky gives the okay to take out his best boyhood friend. That's uh, the.
1: That's the that's the word uh, that that was in a, a book uh, one of the books that I used as research uh, Havana Nocturne uh, which was uh, basically about how uh, this uh, Meyer Lansky Lucky Luciano tried to uh, uh, what they did to try and make uh, Havana sort of their base their uh, uh, basically the, the Las Vegas for the mob uh, away from prying eyes of uh, U.S. law enforcement. Uh, And uh, just uh, in the months, in the month right before the Dodgers arrived for 1947 for spring training, there was a a mob convention, for lack of a better description, at the Hotel Nacional where they they kind of took over a floor and where they uh, started to plot what they would do as far as uh, casinos, the hotel, various hotels. They they owned Lansky, uh, lived lived in Havana and owned owned hotels, and he had uh, brought... uh, Luciano to there to, to Havana to start planning this out. So that's what was going on at the Hotel Nacional uh, Prior to the Dodgers arriving for spring training uh, uh, I mean, I look at the Hotel Nacional almost like a character in and of itself oh, yeah. uh, in, in the book uh, With the, given its history uh,
0: What is it like today?
1: Uh, I think it's still sort of the, the tourist one of the main tourist destinations uh, uh, Today uh, I believe
0: Okay, so uh, just a, a couple of names I just want to throw out there. That's, oh wait, uh, John.
1: You mentioned a picture of Jackie Robinson. In my basement, I have a wonderful picture of a catcher, and it's Mike Gonzalez, Miguel Gonzalez. Right.
0: And I didn't realize his story until I read it in your book. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about who he was and what happened to him, getting caught in this whole thing.
1: Well, forty-six, forty-seven. Uh, right, me, Miguel Angel Gonzalez, or as he was known here, were playing for the mostly for the St. Louis Cardinals, Mike Gonzalez. Uh, He he had, I think, an 18-year career in the majors. Uh, He was a catcher for uh, the Giants, the Cardinals, the White Sox, I'm kind of going off the top of my head here, but uh, when he was done playing in in the majors, he was the third base coach for the the Cardinals for a long time. Uh, And in Cuba, he mostly associated with uh, the Havana team uh, and saved enough money where he started buying uh, ownership uh, he became he was a player then a player manager and then eventually manager became a part owner and eventually owned the team outright uh, but with uh, many uh, the, the Cardinals uh, there were several Cardinals who jumped their contracts to go play in Mexico uh, and he of course uh, coached them uh, he, what he would do is recruit them to come play for Arana, uh, uh during the winter so having managed them he also was one of the ones who was now ineligible. So he uh, asked for his release from the, uh, from the Cardinals because he didn't want to lose his stake in, in the team that he had uh, purchased uh, in, in the Cuban League. Uh, so he never returned to play, uh, to uh, coach in the majors after that, even though uh, eventually he and, and the other Cuban players were reinstated to organize baseball. I don't know how much it was to to sort of keep them from playing, but there were there were moments like, um, you know, the in the early part of the 20th century, teams like the Reds and A's, uh, Tigers would come to Cuba to play uh, these barnstorming exhibitions, and uh, they'd lose a lot of times. Uh, the 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 major league teams and uh, Ban Johnson, the American League president at the time, was not too happy about it, and he tried to ban. Uh, uh, major league teams from going down there, at least under the banner of the actual major league team's name. Uh, you know, it, it, uh, I believe the uh, the the quote that I have in my book. He didn't want to see them uh, getting beat by uh, coffee-colored Cubans. Uh, you know, basically because they weren't even necessarily like the complete major league team. Like they might be calling themselves the Giants. They might have like. Some Giants and some guys from other teams. Babe Ruth one time went down there with the Giants in 1920 for an exhibition. Uh, so the, there was that. The, the, they tried to k- tried to limit uh, those types of exhibitions, but they kept happening. I mean, the, it was in in Cuba it was known as the American Series, where and it, where major league teams would come and play these exhibition games throughout the first half of the 20th century. Uh, also, Negro league teams would come down there, and that was part of the American Series. Um, as far as uh, what, did he say that there was they were trying to block Cuban players from coming to the majors, or was it just the idea of major league players coming down there? Well, I think a little bit of both. Okay. He, he just said that there was disgruntlement about the fact that the
0: Cuban players were the American players mm-hmm. and that there was a, a kind of sense that they
1: didn't like that. Yeah, no, that, that was definitely true in those early exhibitions. Um, and as far as mm-hmm. the the, Cuba, the white Cuban players who came to play... Uh, in the majors, Adolfo Luka being one, uh, Armando Marsans, uh, Rafa Almeida. Uh, like when um, when Almeida and Marsan signed with the Reds in 1911, they were the first. They became the first Cuban-born players in the majors of the modern era since 1900. And I I would find uh, uh, references to articles written by the sports writers of the time, trying to assure white American fans that they weren't black. Uh, but there, you know that was that was always the the, their race was always called into suspicion. Like they would say, "Look, they're they're Cuban. They're not black. They're okay." That was that was what was always said. Um, but like uh, Alonzo Feluke uh, heard uh, the N word himself referred to as the N word, even though he was white. Uh, so uh, so there was that sort of uh, you know discrimination or fear uh, among uh, baseball fans and the baseball powers that be here.
0: By the way, have you been back to Cuba at all? I
1: have not. You have not. Okay. I'm just curious, how were the players who've played like UK and people like that except in Cuba? Were they heralded as great players like Miguel Gonzalez uh, a- in or Cuba or in Cuba? Oh yeah, did they, they were, object I- to the fact that they got this chance and they No, no, miss- they were they were icons uh, in in Cuba, not just for how great players they were there, but for the fact that they reached the majors. That was uh, that was a point of pride, I think, uh, on the island, uh, that for all the, the, the Cuban players who got to play in the majors. Uh, so yeah. Uh, so when I was in Florida many years ago, they had a reunion of the Cuban players at the Orange Bowl, and I happened to go. And the adulation that Joe Black, Minnie Minoso was uh-huh. like, uh, hell, uh, it was unbelievable. Yeah, they used to play a, uh, uh, a sort of an old timers game at. Yeah. Uh, Miami, what became Bobby Maduro Stadium, where the uh, the Orioles used to hold spring training. And they would play that uh, sort of alumni game every year, and they'd bring in guys uh, from C- guys who played in the Cuban League to, to play. When, in the I was, when I was a kid, uh, the Washington Senate seemed to be almost totally Cuban in the 50s. Right, Joe uh, Joe Cambria was a scout, uh, and he signed, I think of something, over, over 300 Cuban players. <laughs> uh, you know, obviously, not all of them made it to the majors, but they were scattered around the minor we'll leagues. Uh, yeah, and uh, and he he was a scout for the for the Senators, so they, they had uh, uh, a, quite a quite a contingent of Cuban players from nineteen thirties to the nineteen
0: fifties. By the way, the, uh, there some uh, some of the top stars in Major League Baseball today are Cuban. Do you know what the reaction of the uh, Cuban fans? Do they follow them at all,
1: or uh... my understanding is that they try to get as much information as they can about what's going on here in the majors? Uh, I, I've seen sort of features when uh, journalists have gone there and talked to to uh, Cuban fans, uh, if, if what's called the La Aquina Caliente, the hot corner, this this area of Parque uh, Central in Havana, and uh, by whatever means they can, they get information about the players that are that are here. I've read and heard where some like sometimes they'll get. Um, like uh, 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 rebroadcasts uh, the, the, of, of games, but like the Cuban defectors are edited out. <laughs> 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 uh, I don't know if that's true, but that, that's what I've heard from people who have gone there and, 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 and seen it. But somehow somehow they get, get information, uh, whether, uh, you know, and, and they try to follow what's going on in the
0: majors here. That's funny, so it goes from like the first batter to the eighth batter, and <laughs> nobody <laughs> knows what happens <laughs> to the other guys. Yeah.
1: curious to get your thoughts or what you, your predictions on how uh, Cuban players coming over to the U.S. is going to pan out in the future years. You know, um, U.S. normalizes relations with Cuba, and that could open roads for more players coming over. And each year there's more and more Cubans joining the major leagues, like the Diamondbacks signed two players alone last offseason. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think we're moving towards
0: like an international draft, or how do you think it's going to pan out?
1: I don't know about that. I mean, most of those guys that we're talking about, uh, Puig and, and Cespedes, those are all guys who defected. I yes. mean, that's how these Cuban players are coming over now. Uh, with the relations being beginning to be normalized, um, I still think we're a ways off. But what I can sort of envision, and, and I'm certainly not the first one to suggest this, but um, maybe we might see some kind of a posting system, like you see with the Japanese league, where a major league team, major league teams would bid for the right to uh, negotiate with a certain pool of players that, that the, the Cuban uh, government, in their case, would make available. Uh, so that might be the first sort of step into that, uh, but uh, I think we're still quite a ways off. I mean, the embargo is still law. Uh, so I, I, there's, I think there's still many steps that have to be sort of ironed out before we get to that point. Uh, um, you know, I'm sure the Cuban government will want there to be some sort of, how will they deal with defectors? Um, uh, you know, if, if, if there is going to be an exchange of players, um, you know, right now, the, the, we, we accept all the Cuban defectors. Would that
0: change? I don't know. Okay, so uh, until someone else raises their hand, a question uh, that predates 1946-47 season, but it's in your book, I thought this was another great story, uh, by a, a, another writer, He was pretty good, I think, this guy, Ernest Hemingway, and Hugh Casey, the ball player. If you could just talk about that a little bit.
1: Sure, well, as as I mentioned, the Dodgers were no strangers to training in Havana. They had been there in 41 and 42. Uh, And this was, I I believe it was 42. Uh, uh, Hemingway was a a baseball fan. Uh, He liked to uh, uh, hobnob with the star players, the players on the Dodgers invited a group of them to his uh, ranch uh, outside Havana uh, and after a night of drinking decided that uh, he and uh, Hugh Casey needed to to do some boxing in his living room. (laughs) So uh, uh, after uh, breaking furniture and knocking each other around, uh, uh, finally uh, uh, after the wife having to come down several times to find out what was going on, the players decided, okay, this has probably gone too far And as they were about to leave, uh, uh, Hemingway uh, tried to convince uh, Hugh Casey to stay over the night so that the next morning they could duel and he would let Hugh Casey decide what the weapon would be. That's when the Dodgers said, We're done, and they pulled him out of there. The next morning he came came to the ballpark and apologized uh, uh, for how drunk he was and what he was suggesting (laughs) that they do.
0: All right, so another, uh, there's a couple names I just want to throw out that are Mm -hmm. in your book uh a couple of players if you could just uh maybe talk a bit about them because they may not be names that baseball fans are that familiar with in, in the u.s uh and again part of my pronunciation with some of these names uh silvio garcia mm-hmm. uh if you could just talk a bit about him sure. with branch ricky uh
1: silvio garcia was a, a great shortstop in the cuban league uh he was black uh, and, purportedly, uh, he was one of the players that Branch Rickey considered as far as breaking the color barrier. Um, he had uh, seen him on one of these exhibition games, uh, but apparently during an interview, uh, he asked, asked him what would, would he do if he encountered uh, somebody saying something uh, racist against him. And his response supposedly was, I'll kill him. <laughs> uh, so what now this may be, this may be an apocryphal story uh, but uh, it's, it's been told by Cuban his, baseball historians uh, so whatever consideration that he might have given to Silvio Garcia probably ended at that moment but I also don't think that it was serious consideration because to really, to really make a definitive break of the color barrier I think it needed to be a, an African American player uh, to, to really uh, make that, that leap as opposed to bringing in a player from Cuba where there was already this ambiguity about as among fans here about are they white are they black and uh, bringing uh, an african-american into the majors would have been a definitive break of the color barrier so I think it, it's probably unlikely that he was seriously considered but he was probably somewhere on the list
0: uh, uh, Cristobal Torriente, Tor- Torriente.
1: Torriente. yeah who's, who's in the Hall of Fame now uh, yes with with uh, uh, that Negro League Committee uh, several years ago that inducted, I think it was like 18 or 19 uh, former players. Um, he was a, a power hitting uh, uh, outfielder uh, for Almendares uh, and Havana. Um, I mentioned before that uh, Ruth had gone down uh, with members of the Giants for a series of exhibition games uh, in 1920, and uh, so obviously Ruth was the star attraction for the, the, the team that was barnstorming there. and in, in their series against Cuban teams uh, in one game, Torriente uh, hit three home runs, uh, and Ruth did not. So Torriente was hailed uh, in Cuba as the Cuban Babe Ruth uh, uh, for, for that exhibition game. So, uh,
0: And then a name that's easier for me to pronounce, uh, which some of the fans here may know of, uh, Danny Gardella. Mm-hmm.
1: A pretty colorful uh, uh, player for the New York Giants. He was one of the, the first guys to to jump the his contract uh, kind of started the, the wave of, of the guys who jumped to play in Mexico um, and he played in the Cuban League uh, as well. He played uh, for uh, actually when uh, there were in 46-47 there was the traditional Cuban League and then there was that uh, uh, organized uh, baseball sanctioned uh, rival that, that basically faded uh, uh, that season. Well. The following season, the Cuban League finally got into an agreement uh, where they were brought into the under under the umbrella of organized baseball. Uh, but now, some Cuban players who were still ineligible, they tried to form their own league. So this was so now the league in La Tropical was sort of the the, the rogue league. Uh, and he played for one of the teams there. He was Santiago. Uh, but, uh, so yeah, he was a pretty colorful character and, and, and kind of the guy who started the uh, the uh, flight of jumpers from the majors to mexico
0: well there's definitely it's a book full of colorful characters uh, of all types and it's really you, you did a great job of interweaving these stories which can become quite complex in, in baseball history they all happen to come together in, in one season in effect uh, and unless there's any other questions here which they do not, they're not appear to be so uh, For those here, but those especially listening to the podcast, again, the name of the book, Havana Hardball, Spring Training, Jackie Robinson and the Cuban League, published by University Press of Florida, written by Cesar Brioso. Thank you very much, Cesar. Thank Thank you.